This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. We can't resist a good political question, a prediction from you for our hot question of the day. And of course, as we said, today is the last day of campaigning in Alberta. Uh, It is going to be decision day tomorrow and make no mistake about it. This is a critical election for us here in BC as well. I mean, one of the candidates one of the main candidates who is leading in all the polls there in Alberta is vowing to punish BC for opposition to the pipeline. And that could definitely impact us as early as by the end of the week. He may try to punish us in some way if he wins that election tomorrow. And then the thing is, when it comes to trying to predict the election, you don't know either, right? Nobody saw Rachel Notley and the NDP's win coming in the last election four years ago. Who knows what kind of surprise might happen on election night if there is a surprise at all. That's what makes it so fascinating. So for our hot question of the day today, we are asking you, what do you think will be the result of tomorrow's provincial election in Alberta? Do you think it'll be a United Conservative Party majority government? Do you think it will be an NDP majority? Or do you say, hey, anything could happen? I'm of the anything could happen uh, mindset in this because I just think it, there's so many wild cards here and you don't know. You know, in BC, we used to have that joke about the 15 second Socred person who used to go into the voting booth and the whole time they're saying, I'm not going to vote Socred, I'm not going to vote Socred. And they go in the booth, they vote Socred and they come out and they say, I'm never going to vote Socred ever again. They could have something similar like that in Alberta when it comes to the NDP. Who knows? So cast your vote. Simi Sarah 980 on Twitter is where you'll find it. You can email me with your prediction, Simi at CKNW.com or call our buzz line 604-331-BUZZ. You are listening to The Simi Sarah Show. The caribou population in this province has definitely been dwindling. We are down to several hundred caribou. And for years now, that has been a concern. Previous governments have tried to uh, cull the predators of caribou in order to help bring those caribou numbers up. Uh, The NDP government is trying something a little bit different by instituting some large protected areas for the caribou, but... That has local residents concerned about those efforts, and they're worried that it's going to negatively impact jobs in the region. Uh, This has actually been such a big issue. You've had political and business leaders from the Peace region in Victoria last week uh, calling on the province to stop its caribou recovery plans for the South Peace region. You've got the Premier up there today, actually, making an announcement at 1 o'clock. We'll hear more about that coming up. But right now, we wanted to get some background on this issue, what has been happening. Uh, So joining us is Kathleen Connolly, who is a member of the group Concerned Citizens for Caribou Recovery. Kathleen, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate you getting in touch. Thank you. Well, we're curious to know what has been going on. What what are the concerns here? So I think the concerns are pretty specific on our side. So we don't nec- we have no problem with the whole uh, thought process of recovering caribou. Uh, our concerns are how government is going around uh, about doing that, specifically the lack of consultation with our local government, industry, stakeholders. We feel that they are making some pretty unilateral decisions about land management without actually consulting those that are going to be most impacted by the results of those closures. We also, there's a lot of uh, concern and questions around some of the science that they're providing in data, which a lot of local residents probably don't feel as accurate as uh, the biologists for the provincial government seem to think. Uh, so those are some of the concerns really around the transparency of how they've consulted and how they've provided right. information to locals. Yeah. Is there an idea, is there any kind of consensus out there, Kathleen, about the better way to approach this? Like what does need to be done? 
So I think an, an interesting uh, uh scenario from the South Peace is that we currently have two of our First Nations currently managed maternity penning and aerial wolf calls. Uh, according to provincial documents, there was a 61% increase in those herds last year. So we feel that probably what they're doing around, they have high elevation closures, they have some of these other strategies, that the 61% is a, a fairly decent increase in a population. So why would we be making such drastic uh, changes if we're seeing success in some of the programs that already exist? So do you feel maybe some of those programs haven't been given enough time? I think that that is true. And I also think that uh, maternity, some of these are very expensive projects. And of course, uh, you know, for example, wolf call and aerial uh, killing, though it's unpopular uh, in urban areas, has proven to be successful, but it is very expensive. And you have to do it year after year after year. You can't just stop the call program. So I think that in terms of sustainability, there are concerns, I think, both for those of us who are residents and also for government. So I think it's trying to find ways to be more efficient. And, you know, I think that we're not necessarily opposed to closures of backcountry, but let's be a part of that conversation and let's make sure industry and communities can mitigate that. Right. There's certainly been, uh, this has certainly made the headlines, right? Like a lot of talk about this over the last couple of weeks. Do you feel at any point, like, is the government listening? No. And why do you get that impression? Uh, so I've been to four meetings. I'm headed to one tonight in Revelstoke. And the responses have been either half answers, no answers. They're literally on our Facebook page. We have a picture of one fella asleep on the panel. So that would indicate that they're really not interested in what we're saying. And what, do you, what is the Premier's announcement then about this afternoon? Well, we're hopeful that at the very least he's going to give communities more time. Uh, one of the things that we've really asked for is socioeconomic impact assessments uh, for those industries and communities that are impacted. Uh, government in the South Peace is still working on the terms of reference. You can't have an assessment like that done in two weeks. So let's um, extend that time frame uh, and let's give communities an opportunity to understand and be able to mitigate uh, what that might look like. So we're hopeful that he's going to push back some time frames and actually allow for communities to do some of their own socio-impact assessment work. What was uh, the biggest problem, do you think, with the plan? I know there was all sorts of things in there, right? Like reduced snowmobiling allowed in the backcountry, um, other issues as well. Like, what do you think was the biggest problem? In my opinion, the biggest problem is that they didn't talk to anybody except First Nations and the federal government and that communities didn't have a chance to buy in from the beginning. There are a lot of questions we have. I think if those questions had been answered and a lot of those um, stress points had been resolved, I think it would have been a completely different conversation today. But because they're essentially trying to ram Section 11 down our throats, I think people are pushing back and they're frustrated that uh, their communities aren't being heard. So, you know, I think fundamentally there's a lot of those plans that are fine. It's how they've won a bit of their approach has been wrong. Right. And so they're also they're also talking about still going ahead and, and culling wolves, right? Mm-hmm. They are. Yeah, there are still uh, predation plans and in, in all of uh, in all of the herd plans. Uh, there's 54 herd plans across the province and predation control is definitely a, a part of all those uh, herd plans. How critical has it become, Kathleen, to do something? Because like, it sounds like those caribou numbers are really going down. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, definitely government and, and us, we have a responsibility to try and protect those animals. But if we look at some of the science, uh, so there's two parks, one in Tweedsmere and one in Jasper, where there's been no industry, no human touch. 
The wildlife has been left uh, in the land to balance itself. And even in those areas where there's no people, there's no industry, uh, those populations are still declining. So why is that? Yeah. So what what are the next steps here? Like if you could definitely get yourself in that room with the premier today, what would you tell him? We'd ask him to start the process again. All right. Right. Even if it comes uh, to the same conclusions, just start the process again and let everybody have their say. Yep. Because this is the thing, if communities don't buy in to these uh, plans, there are people, there will be people who will be riding illegally, there will be, it will be public outrage and revolt, and I think the only way that they can find success as government is to have our communities buy in. And the outcomes may be the same, but we're going to support it, and we're going to help them achieve their goals. All right, well, we look forward to hearing what the Premier has to say this afternoon. So, Kathleen, yep. Indeed we do. Okay, thank you for your time, Kathleen. Thanks, Jimmy. Take care. Thanks for explaining it to us. That is Kathleen Connolly. She's a member of the group Concerned Citizens for Caribou Recovery. So what's your prediction for what's going to happen in Alberta tomorrow? This is the last day of campaigning for candidates before their provincial election uh, officially comes to an end tomorrow with the vote and the counting of the vote. Uh, Alberta's NDP leader, Rachel Notley, spent the final day of this campaign casting herself as the best person to get the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion past the finish line. Uh, She put on her classic politician outfit of hard hat and work boots, uh, touring a pipe fabrication yard in Calgary. That's going to be a key battleground for tomorrow's election. Uh, Meanwhile, United Conservative leader Jason Kenney, who has been leading in all the polls from start to finish, uh, continues to criticize the Notley government for what he calls dithering on pipelines and for collaborating with the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, on energy and environmental policy. So 10-point lead uh, is what the UCP has right now. So any predictions for tomorrow? Let's find out what Ryan Jesperson has to say. He, of course, is the host of the Ryan Jesperson Show on 630 Chet in Edmonton and joins us now. Hi, Ryan. Simi, how are you? I am good, thank you. So you're coming down to the finish line. I am. Can I just say, totally unrelated, to derail our conversation right out of the gate, <laughs> I, I can't help but but take a look at this video out of Paris, Notre Dame, the the, the inferno yeah. at the cathedral, the spire just collapsing. That is, have you ever been there? I have, yeah. In fact, I was just looking at the pictures during the commercial break. Oh, if we were gosh. there four or five years ago, I guess. Unbelievable. It is uh, awful. Yeah. No, I'll tell you, of course... Uh, and maybe it's just uh, I'm, I'm sitting here and marveling at this because I'm just looking for anything to distract me from from what's going on in Alberta right now. You know how it is making yeah. your way through a campaign. We're on day 27 of 28, and uh, and, and basically, uh, you know, I mean, it's I, I think a lot of people are ready for this to be over the campaign that is because it has been characterized by uh, perhaps uh, the most negative, smear driven, mud slinging nastiness yeah. uh, that we've ever seen, in particular between two parties. Parties, and in particular between two individuals. Well, the United Conservative Party leader, uh, Jason Kenney, the leader in the polls right now, has not taken direct swipes specifically at the individual, uh, Rachel Notley, because convention would suggest that's not a wise political play. Uh, she's very popular 
personally. She's very popular as an individual. You can't necessarily say the same about her party. Uh, he has certainly taken big swipes at the NDP, calling it an accidental government, calling it the job-killing NDP, uh, and the like. Uh, meantime, Rachel Notley, uh, when she dropped that writ uh, close to a month ago uh, and announced that we'd be going to the polls here in Alberta on April 16th, uh, she was about 60 to 90 seconds into her announcement, and she was already saying, uh, Jason Kenney lies to you, he's this, that, and the other. And then his candidates have kind of taken over from there. It's been what we refer to here in Alberta as bozo eruption after yeah. bozo eruption. And uh, w- what's really unbelievable to me is that the storylines here characterizing a lot of the United Conservative candidates do not seem to have had an impact on the polls, or at least... If they did, Simi, uh, according to this exclusive Global News Ipsos poll released this morning, the Conservatives polling at 50% of decided and leaning voters. I mean, that's it's remarkable to consider what they may be polling at had they not had so much unflattering yeah. headlines. Exactly. Also, what is the deal with this Alberta party thing that just came up in the last day or two? Well, this is this is I, I you know what I honestly think this is. Uh, I honestly think this is one guy uh, and a, this is a civilian, not even a candidate uh. that, that, that I think misheard what, what what. So he claims. So here's the deal. Very quickly. A guy claims that he got a robo call from someone claiming to be Stephen Mandel, who's the former uh, mayor of Edmonton. He's a former progressive conservative cabinet minister under former Premier Jim Prentice. He's now the leader of the Alberta Party, which is kind of a centrist party, a small-c conservative centrist party. The man claims he heard the caller identify themselves as Stephen Mandel, who then went on to endorse Jason Kenney, leader of the United Conservatives. Very unlikely, the Alberta Party fielded the man's complaint and put this in front of the Edmonton police, and they're calling for an investigation by Alberta's election commissioner as well. Uh, Conservatives, including New West Public Affairs, which is headed up by a name that your listeners will recognize, Monty Solberg, former conservative cabinet minister under Stephen Harper. Uh, New West Public Affairs claiming that no, 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 it wasn't Stephen Mandel on the call, it was Stephen Harper. You heard a recording from Stephen Harper, the former PM endorsing Jason Kenney. That's what I suspect it was, Oh, okay, Interesting, because that was a very bizarre story that I was you know, reading about this morning. Well, and that would be about the greasiest politics yeah. that, you know, that would be about the greasiest politics we've seen. And that's saying something. That is saying, especially in this election, which has been so messy. Uh, so when it comes down to it, then, Ryan, the same thing that you've been hearing from people all along from the last time we talked to you is it's about the economy. Well, I mean, not for everybody. No, it's not. It's 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 I've and, and this is what the, the United Conservatives want it to be about. And if they achieve a majority government tomorrow, they'll have been successful. Uh, Jason Kenney, when he when he stepped to the podium, you know, minutes after Rachel Notley announced the election campaign period, stood behind a podium that read in big white letters, a blue background, jobs, economy, pipelines. And they've wanted to keep it focused on that. The NDP's message has essentially been, hey, listen, we're, we're, we're working steadfastly on those five. We're doing what we can to spur the economy to get those pipelines built, but that's not all that government does. That's not the sole responsibility of government. There are also significant social issues, including protecting uh, vulnerable or marginalized members of our population, inclu- including LGBTQ plus kids by way of uh, gay straight alliances in yeah. schools, uh, investment in social programs, subsidized daycare. That's been a big part of their election platform. Ultimately, the say comes to the voters, and that'll be tomorrow. 
No kidding. Okay, so it says 10% difference in the polls. Do you believe that or do you think it's tighter? Uh, I think it depends where you're talking. I think if you're talking about rural Alberta, I think it's going to be a landslide for the United yep. Conservatives. Uh, if you're talking down in Calgary, I think there will be some close ridings. Um, I think that, you know, they'd be the NBDP would be lucky to hang on to five seats down in Calgary. That's where they made a lot of progress back in 2015 when Albertans gave the Progressive Conservatives the boot after 44 years. In Edmonton, same sort of a thing, Simi. Uh, some, including my colleague and yours, Danielle Smith, uh, former yes. leader of the Wild Rose Party, she's predicting that the NDP will sweep Edmonton. I'm not predicting a sweep, but I think 15 to 18 out of those 20 seats is realistic. Uh, you know, this this campaign is going to come down to Calgary. It's no mistake, it's not a coincidence that Rachel Notley announced her campaign in Calgary, that she's been spending a ton of time in Calgary and also right. up in Fort McMurray as well. Uh, not to say she's taking Edmonton for granted, but they know that their biggest fight is here in Cowtown. Okay, so Ryan, let's let's have it. Any predictions from you? Like, we're, yeah. we're running a poll today about either UCP majority, NDP majority, or do you think anything could happen? Uh, well, forget about an NDP majority. That's well, anything could happen, but that's that's you know, I, I don't think that's going to happen um, because Simi, they are our colleagues at Global News forced me to put number <laughs> to put numbers on paper um, and I amended my gut instinct okay. one that I've been rolling with but my final numbers that'll be broadcast on global tomorrow as part of our election panel coverage uh, I, I think that the UCP are going to take 65 seats uh, okay. keep in mind the majority would be 44 there are 87 seats up for grabs I think they'll take 65 uh, and I think the NDP will take 21 and I think that the Alberta party will have that one seat in Calgary Elbow that Greg Clark has held. Now, Greg Clark is the former leader of the Alberta Party. Right. He was pressured to step aside to allow for a leadership race that they thought might spur interest in the party, a bunch of membership sales, and a big amount of fundraising. Uh, that's the leadership race that Stephen Mandel won. Keep in mind, Greg Clark did not run in that leadership race. Huh. Now, the question is now, if Greg Clark does defend his seat in Calgary Elbow, which I think he will, and Stephen Mandel does not win in Edmonton, yeah. does Greg Clark become leader of the party again. Another interesting note out of Calgary Elbow. Calgary Elbow, that riding, it's a it's an affluent riding. It's a beautiful riding along the Bow River. They have sent three premiers to office. Uh, Peter Lougheed, Allison Redford, and Ralph Klein all were elected in Calgary Elbow. Interesting. All right. Well, I have a feeling we're going to be talking to you in a couple of days, Ryan. So listen, good luck. I'll look forward to it, Simi. Thank you. Thank you. That is Ryan Jesperson, host of the Ryan Jesperson Show on 630 Chet in Edmonton. Our next guest is a longtime Silicon Valley insider and investor, one of the early investors and mentors to Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook. So close, in fact, that he recommended that Facebook hire Sheryl Sandberg, who is also now synonymous with the company. But over the last few years, Roger McNamee says he could no longer sit by quietly and watch what was happening to the company. He's written a book about the experience of trying to find out what was going on. The book is called Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe, and Roger McNamee joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's awesome. It's so great to be back in Vancouver. It's a very catchy title, by the way, to your what, book. My wife came up with the, with the name. Smart and, lady. Well, the great part was I said it to my agent, and he goes, that'll never fly. And uh, then about a week later, he calls me back and goes, I can't get the name out of my head. we got to go with it. So then I run it by the editor. He goes, that'll never fly. He takes it to the sales force, and 20 seconds later, he calls me 
laughing back and goes, they just tore me a fresh one. They said, that's the title, dude. Back off. It's our favorite <laughs> one of the whole year. Well, it was off to a good start then. Um, the book is so fascinating. You, there's a line in the book where you say, you are really sad about Facebook. Yeah. Why? Well, imagine this. I began my career in Silicon Valley in 1982. So I was back when dinosaurs roamed the earth, right? <laughs> I mean, the space shuttle was the big new thing before PCs. So when I met Mark, he was only 22, but I had been investing for 24 years, half my life. And he was extraordinary. You know, I thought he had a better value system and a much better idea than anybody else at that time, which is really saying something. Because if you think back, the early 2000s, a lot of the companies got started got started with this notion of just ignoring the rules, ignoring the law, yeah. and just taking what they wanted. So think Uber and Lyft and Airbnb or Spotify, right. right? All of them took advantage of something. Facebook seemed like it was more balanced, like it was more user-focused, and it required identity. You had to use your school email address to get on when I first got involved with them, and I thought that was going to allow them to be bigger than than Google was at that time because it would keep trolls out. And so I really believed in Mark. And so I was sad because I spent three years as a close advisor. And then I was, you know, six, seven years just watching from the sidelines as a fan. And for whatever reason, I should have seen the signals earlier than I did. But when I finally saw them, it was just heartbreaking because, you know, this was something I'd been involved in, something I really believed in, people I really liked. And all of a sudden, I'm having to come to terms with, with a, a catastrophe. What were those signals, though? Like, and wh- well, at what point did you start to think to yourself that something's wrong? So here's the thing. I retired from the investment business at the end of 2015, and I go okay. on vacation with my wife. And like a month later, boom, it's the beginning of the Democratic primary in New Hampshire in 2016. So it's January. And I start to see things coming out of a Facebook group that was notionally tied to the Bernie Sanders campaign. And it was these horrible anti-Hillary Clinton memes that were deeply misogynistic, totally inappropriate. And they were spreading virally, which said, wow, somebody was advertising to get my friends into this group because there's no way they would have found it any other way. And then a few months later, Facebook expelled a group that used the advertising tools to gather data on people who expressed an interest in Black Lives Matter, and they sold it to police departments. Now, Facebook did the right thing, expelled them, but by then the harm had been done. And then in June of 2016, we had Brexit. So the UK referendum on the European Union, and that's when I realized, oh my God, in the context of an election, the way Facebook virality works really favors the campaign with the more vicious, negative message And I thought, that's really bad for democracy. That's when I, at that point, I'm realizing, wait a minute, I have three unrelated things. There's something wrong here. So I start trying to find allies, people to help me, because I didn't have any data. And it took me months before I could get anybody to listen. By then, there were more data points. I finally reached out to Mark and Cheryl in October of 2016, nine days before the U.S. election. And I said, guys, I think there's something wrong with the business model and the algorithms that lets bad actors hurt innocent people. This is nine days before the election. Before the election. Okay, and you obviously, you have the ability to get their ear. They're going to pay attention to you well, when you send an email, Roger. Res- they certainly responded right away. And, okay, but... But, but, but it, they they didn't treat it like a business problem. They treat it like a public relations problem. Like, like the problem would be, what if I took what I said to them and went public with it? So what they really wanted to do was to keep me from talking about the problem. So they said, Roger, 
we think this is really important, but we don't think this is anything wrong with the business model. We don't think this is wrong with the algorithms. We think these are isolated things that we've taken care of, but we take you seriously. So we're going to hand you off to one of our colleagues, uh-huh. a guy I knew really well and I liked very much. So I was okay with that. Yeah. But the notion was, we're not going to take a meeting with you. We're not going to really drill down on this. We're going to let Dan take care of it. And he explains to me, Roger, Facebook is a platform, not a media company, right? So you got the same thing coming back to you, and you're listening. I know, I know this, you guys. I, I, mean, I know I this already. So in every conversation with Dan was literally, I could have, I literally could have played it back to him, right? Because by the third or fourth conversation before the election, he's saying the same things over and over again, expecting me to be satisfied, and I'm not. And I explained to him, I go, wait a minute, I've got two massive issues of civil rights and two things related to elections that are scary, and you know. Then the U.S. election happens, and after that, I freak out completely, and I explain to him, I go, dude, you need to understand, this is a trust business. You have to protect the people who use your product. You have to do what Johnson & Johnson, the pharmaceutical company, did Great story, yeah. after Tylenol. Right? Explain some, to people what that means. So in 1982 in Chicago, Illinois, some dude put poison in bottles of Tylenol on retail shelves. A few people were killed. The CEO of Johnson Johnson didn't wait a moment. The literally the minute the story breaks, he pulls every bottle of Tylenol right off the shelves, every single one, every single one. Yeah. And the net result was that you know they took a short term hit, but they didn't put it back till they created tamper proof packaging. Yeah. At which point everybody goes, "Wow, those people are really good, right? They're really trustworthy." And that they was, care about us. It's, is it's what the you same think. thing yeah. that Boeing should have done with the 737 yes. Max. And anyway, I was telling Google, uh, I'm sorry, I was telling Facebook, this is what you guys got to do. And he's going, Roger, the law says we're okay. I'm going, hang on. You got Brexit, you got the US election. And we don't know what degree you're involved, but it sure looks like you're involved a lot. And then you've got these civil rights things where you're clearly involved. You can't pretend that the law is going to protect you if people stop trusting. Was that the point then, Roger, when you realized my your idea of Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook was very different from the reality of what oh, it yeah. became? And it was crushing because I'm a pro- I'd spent 34 years as a professional investor, right? I mean, I'm an analyst. I yeah. should know. And it was like, why didn't I see this sooner? I just, I wanted to- Why st- didn't you see it sooner? It's a great question. I think it's because- I was at the tail end of my career. I really liked these people. I wanted to believe they were different and better. And, you know, we all make mistakes. And in this case, I made that one. Roger McNamee has been investing in Silicon Valley for 35 years. His book is called Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe. And as you as you explained in the book, Roger, which is so fascinating, is that this was difficult for you to oh, come yeah. to that point, to admit this. Yeah. I mean, it was one of those moments where as somebody who was retired, I could easily have sat back and just let it be somebody else's problem. And for whatever reason, I realized it was a moment in time that was really a test of my character. You know, if I wasn't going to stand up and do something about this, I wasn't really going to stand up and do anything about anything, right? And uh, it was funny because when I gave up after three months trying to persuade Facebook to do the right thing, I I had a moment, a month of soul searching while I was trying to figure out what should I do? And I couldn't find anybody to work with on the thing. And then a miracle occurred. I was on Bloomberg Television co-hosting their tech show, which I do once or twice a year. And by pure dumb chance, there's a guy on there named Tristan Harris who had been the design ethicist to Google. And he's on because he'd been on 60 Minutes, the U.S. Uh, news program, talking about 
brain hacking. And now Tristan is an expert in persuasive technology, and he was really talking about the fact that when you take the techniques that advertisers and public relations people have used for 100 years and you put them on a smartphone, mm-hmm. you get superpowers, right? You get this ability to really manipulate to get right into people's brain, yeah. Because you can tailor it so individually. And this notion that Facebook is two and a half billion Truman shows with everybody getting their own reality and how dangerous that can be to people's public health but also to democracy and when i'm i interviewed him and afterwards i called him up i go do you need a wingman because he clearly understood the underlying cause of what i had seen and the way he articulated it was so it was so clear that i just said let me help you and so the two of us ganged up and in fact one of the first things we did was come here to vancouver we came to the TED conference in 2017. Right. And a couple people managed to get Tristan onto the schedule at the last minute. So he comes to deliver the pitch here in, 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 in Vancouver. And everybody, like we're expecting a thousand people are going to come immediately to our side, right? And the whole thing, <laughs> we're, like, we're going to solve they not the, listen to us? We're going to yeah. solve, how are they going to, not me, but to Tristan, right. right? But we're thinking, it's we're going to have a thousand people, we're going to be done in yeah. two weeks, right? And we get like two business cards out of it, out of a thousand people. And then we, neither one of them returned the phone call afterwards. It was like, it was immensely. And this was after, like, was this after Cambridge Analytica? No, no, was no, this is like a whole year before. Oh, okay. okay. This is still a whole year before. And all so, right. th- th- in fact, that's the problem, was at the beginning of this thing, you know, we all had a worldview of what these products were like. And we knew that we were giving up personal data in order to get a great free service. What we didn't realize was what else was going on. That, in fact, there was a lot more data being consumed than what we notionally understood ourselves to be giving up. We would and, sit and, there. And that that data was being used for more nefarious purposes than people realized. Well, it, or it, it was available to in, on Facebook to be used by bad guys. Yeah. And it was available inside Google to be used by Google too, right? Yeah. And so you wind up with this situation where you think you're getting a fair trade. And what re- is going on in reality is that 99% of the value is from what they call metadata, which is the data about what you're doing. So it's the device you're on. Are you moving? Are you still? Are you with other people? Where are you, right? Yeah. That has a lot of value. But your browsing history is immensely valuable. What are the 200 things you did before the thing they were interested in? What are the 200 you do after? What do other people do around that? And then they buy all this data, like banking information, you know, and uh, uh, location from your mobile vendor. They buy health and wellness stuff from applications, right? There was a scandal just a few weeks ago about women's menstrual data being sold to Facebook. And with that whole set of data, they can construct a data avatar, on each and every one of us, whether we're on the platform or not, right? You're not on Facebook. And yet, I promise you, somewhere inside that server at Facebook, they have got a really good view of you. And the key thing is we sit there and think, well, wait a minute, our data's out there. There's nothing we can do about it. But the truth is, it's the wrong way to think about it because the damage they do to us is trivial in comparison to the way they use our data to affect other people. So then is there a way to not let that happen? Yes. So the thing I've been arguing for is I believe that the practices around data are just wrong. So the Europeans with their global data protection regulation and the state of California, which has its like 
GDPR light. Those are, were the right idea for how we understood the problem three years ago. Okay. Now what we know is that all this other data, right, because those things only cover the data you put in, which is maybe 1%. The other data is is essentially commercially available to anybody who wants it. And we need to stop that. We need to end the practice. Only of, by law, do you think? Is that I, only I regulation? It, no, I, well, I, one would have hoped the companies would change, but I've no. given up on that. So we yeah. need regulation. So what I'd love to see here in, in Canada is just end the practice of third-party transactions in any kind of personal data. So financial, health and wellness, banking. I'd like to end the practice of companies scanning emails and documents. I mean, in the United States, if Google is, in fact, a platform, that makes them a common carrier. So like a phone company or a postal service, they're not allowed to read the contents of what you're doing, yet they read Gmail. And I'm sitting there going, wait a minute, you're either a platform or you're a media company. If you're reading which the contents... Which one is it? Yeah. My point is, they're claiming that they're a platform, in which case, what they're doing is breaking law. And it, by the way, it's not like a civil huh. offense, it's a criminal offense. And so... My point here is we've never had the conversations. What I want to do is stop the data traffic and then have a conversation about what's reasonable. Because if we're trying to have the negotiation from where we are today, you wind up with the global data protection regulation. You wind up addressing only a teeny fraction of the problem. And so I want to do that. And then I want to use antitrust law in the U.S. to create space for competitors because these guys are blocking Everybody. Oh, absolutely, I mean, yeah. Facebook, Google. They buy up everybody. Well, and think about Facebook, Google, Microsoft, and Amazon control probably 80% of all the artificial intelligence talent in North America. And all of it's being devoted to beha- behavioral manipulation, right? Which is a really Chinese idea. This is this notion with Pokemon Go or with the Google Maps where, you know, you think you're playing a game or you're trying to get from point A to point B and quickly. they are getting you and from Google, point a. And Google's sitting there going, "How can? what can I do to change your behavior. So can I put a Pokemon behind a fence and get you to climb the fence? Yes. Can I put a Pokemon in a Starbucks and get you to go into Starbucks? Yes. If I get Starbucks to pay me, can I do a couponing thing where I can get you to buy coffee? Yes. Or in the case of Google Maps, their job is not to get you from A to B quickly. Their job is to know the time of every possible route. So some people have to be sent on inferior routes to find out what the timing is. And so some percent, you know, my point is we don't know that's going on. And yet, they're sitting there saying, you can't regulate us because we have to compete with China in behavioral manipulation. And I'm going, why? Why? Yeah. Right? I mean, that's like competing with them to do time release anthrax. Now, I mean, I just, there's some things you shouldn't be doing. And I think behavioral manipulation is really high on the list of things you shouldn't be doing. I feel like we could have you here all day to talk well, about this, but very quickly. before. But I will fin- come back. Okay, good. Good to know. But before we let you go, to have to ask you, like, what is your relationship like today with Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg? I have no idea. I don't have one currently. So I last, that would explain I it. last heard from them on the 30th of October of 2016. Um, I have heard indirectly. They sometimes say unflattering things about me, which is not a huge surprise because I think... Well, they still know, haven't gotten the message, though. Well, actually, interestingly, I think Mark is making a real effort now to be part of the conversation. I don't like any of the things he's saying. I think the things he's saying are disingenuous. But he, for a long time, they were pretending like it didn't apply to them. Yeah. Now at least they're in the conversation. Google's still pretending like it doesn't apply to them. And you know, Google invented that whole business model. And they're really good at it. And they work really closely with a lot of governments. So they think they've got everybody taken care of. And I'm hoping that's not true. 
We'll see about that. Uh, Roger, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, it is such a pleasure to be back in Vancouver and to be especially to be here with you. And I'm come back anytime. My wife and I, we have a, a vacation home here. So Do we you? come here regularly. Okay, then that's it. Now we know we're going to be calling you every yeah. time we need to talk about this topic because right. it's a good one. The book is called Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe. Uh, it is written by Roger McNamee. And you know what? You are going to want to read this if you have any concern at all about your private data, your private information, what's been going on on Facebook, you name it. And make sure you check that out. You know, police officers have to deal with a lot of fluid and changing situations. And that involves like a momentary judgment about how dangerous or not a situation can be. So knowing how to deal with people and recognizing potential issues is absolutely paramount. There's a new program that's been developed by the Canucks Autism Network that is helping to train first responders all across the country in how to deal with people who are on the autism spectrum. Everything from recognizing signs to helping them change their approach. Now, the Port Moody Police Department is undergoing this training, in part thanks to one of their own, that is Rob Degoe, whose seven-year-old was his inspiration. Rob joins us now along with um, Hallie Mitchell from the Canucks Autism Network. Hey, thanks to both of you for being with us today. Good morning. Now, Rob, I'll start with you. How did how did this come to your attention that maybe the Port Moody Police Department needed to learn about this? My son is seven years old, but we he was diagnosed at the age of three with autism. My first interaction was invited to a Canucks or at the time Rogers Arena or GM Place and we were allowed to do a family skate for children who are on the spectrum. There I met Ryan Yao, who's now the director of CAN, who made us very welcome. We had met other parents who were all in the same situation as us. And that's how I started my introduction into CAN. <clears throat> I saw the opportunities that CAN provided my son through sports and socialization. And it was a win-win for us and for Ken. Did you notice a difference in him as he was able to socialize more and do those things? Every After every really? event, he, skating, he's done physical literacy. But like anytime he socializes then, where people know how to approach him and how to deal with him, you've noticed an improvement. He's getting better and better. That's amazing, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Hallie, how does that work? Like that, how, does, how does the Canucks Autism Spectrum like reach out to all these different organizations and do this? <laughs> Uh, well, Canucks Autism Network has been around for about 10 years now, and we started with just one program on the North Shore, and now we have over 400 programs a year and 4,000 members in BC. So with one in 49 children in BC diagnosed with autism, there there really is a huge population and a huge community that's looking to access programs that are highly supportive and accessible. So that's something that we're really happy to provide along with these amazing training programs that we've developed. Yeah, let's talk about that. So a, a training program that is for first responders. So what does that mean? What does that involve? Uh, great question. So this uh, training program, we've recently released an online training module for first responders specifically. So that includes fire, police, search and rescue, and emergency health services. Um, it was developed with our first responder advisory committee, which consists of a whole bunch of different individuals representing these first responder categories who also have a child with autism. So these experts helped develop this online module. It's one hour free to take. Um, that can really prepare first responders to support really effectively individuals with autism in crisis situations. Yeah, Rob, was that a consideration for you then? Like as your son was getting older, you thought, what if he has a run-in with the police one day? Very much so. It, it's probably every parent's fear. 
yeah. uh, with a child with autism because they're prone to wandering. They're prone to um, going towards water, dangerous situations because they don't understand the adverse effects of like a big truck or mm-hmm. fast-flowing fast water. And they're not going to understand if somebody says don't do that or get away from there or something like that. That's right. So you... I, I was late, privileged enough to be able to sit on this first responder committee, and I know I think I know everybody who else is. We're all together on this committee, and that training has evolved and given every parent a better sense of um, well-being. Yeah. I guess when we get to, when I know my son, if he comes into contact with a police officer, he's not afraid. He, he, he can trust. His dad's that. a police officer, yes, too, though, yes. right? Because he sees the <clears throat> uniform, so that's easier for him. But you must have been worried about what if he runs into somebody and he's friendly with an officer and an officer doesn't know how to recognize the signs. That's right. And, and that's our goal through this training is to make everybody aware that that response time will be delayed. That's just we just got to wait for the prompts yeah. and wait for that moment where they're, they're going to respond. It's just finding that... Uh, so then when you took this to your boss and said, I'd like us to do this, what was the reaction? Chief Lugo was 100% on board. He super supportive. That must have been a pretty good feeling to know that all of a sudden everybody is going to be getting training because you suggested it. <laughs> yes, it's a great feeling knowing that because I live in Port Moody myself. And so most of the members know my son now. But if he wasn't with me, they well, might, yeah. they might um, you know, if he's reported missing, I got shoe tags on him. I got a little G- GPS tracker on him. And I've, I've lots of things that are there, but giving my, my colleagues the tools to engage with my son or anybody else on the spectrum, it's, it's very it's fulfilling. It must feel yeah, pretty yeah. good. Hallie, what signs? Then? And, you know, we're talking about a seven-year-old here and kids here, but they get older. And one day Rob's not going to be able to monitor everything having to do with his son. So what do first responders need to know? Yeah, well, it is important to think about how first responders might be encountering a child with autism. They might also be encountering a youth or young adult in the community with autism. So uh, it's really important at Canucks Autism Network, one of our favorite sayings is if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. And that's just to say that. That makes perfect sense, actually. It really does. Yeah. Autism is is a huge spectrum. And every person we meet with autism is going to present differently. They're going to have unique characteristics and sensory sensitivities and language abilities and social communicative abilities. Um, So what we do in the course is we introduce first responders to some of the core characteristics that people with autism might have Mm -hmm. with also uh, that reminder that um, you need to approach with an attitude of curiosity when you see some characteristics that might give you uh, an idea that someone might be on the spectrum, thinking about adjusting your response. Because for officers, I'm I'm assuming, Rob, that as soon as you show up on a scene, you're immediately assessing that person. Always. So then what are the signs then, Hallie, that they should look for that tells them that, wait a minute, maybe we're dealing with a different situation here? Yeah, so some characteristics that some people with autism have are differences in social communication. So it might look like having difficulty engaging in back-and-forth conversation, um, avoiding eye contact. A lot of people with autism feel uncomfortable making eye contact. And that would be a red flag to other police officers if they didn't have the training, right? That's right. Uh, Avoidance of eye contact can be misinterpreted as a sign of guilt when Mm -hmm. really for many people with autism, uh, that's just uh, something that feels comfortable for them is to avoid eye contact. Yeah, there are also some other characteristics like repetitive behavior. So it might look like flapping their hands or jumping on the spot um, or repeating the same phrase over and over again. 
Um, so yeah, or again, right. re- yeah, so there are some social communication differences might look like not responding to questions or responding yes or no without understanding All the, red the flags. nature of the question. Right. That's right. So then Rob, if you've done a great job of being able to like help your son out in Port Moody. Are you a little nervous about, I mean, there's kids with autism all over, right? What about those kids and the help that they need? All over. And <clears throat> I think that's the biggest reason why we're trying to get this training out to every police officer, every firefighter, every ambulance, paramedic, anybody who wants it can access the CAN eLearn um, link and they can take that one hour module. And that's just a good starting point. Knowing that in the curiosity piece is huge. If we know, if it doesn't seem right, we just take a moment and step back and think something isn't right here. And it's not maybe the person, the youth, the adult with who's affected by autism isn't doing this because they want to be combative or right. they're actually d- trying to regulate their own body and their own self. And so when we recognize that, we can take a step back and hopefully lower the tensions. And I have numerous stories where I've come to contact with kids and youth or because I'm the youth liaison officer in yeah. City of Port Moody. Lots of scenarios where, you know, the, the room full of police officers and we just let's take a step back. Let's get a few people out. Let's just bring it calm down. it down just as opposed to down. ramping it up. Right. With yep. the tension. Yeah. Because that tension is very high. If, if the. Like you said, all those key well, pieces. That, yeah, like, that's what your training tells you to do, though, that's right? right? That's, that's right. Because we have one our police training is like take control of the situation. Yeah, and this is the opposite of that. This is the opposite where we have to take a step back, and it's really hard for police because when we get called into somewhere, we want to take control, take control, and yeah. be in charge and, and fix it. Have quick. people do what you're telling them to do. That's, that's key. Right. Yeah. This is such a cool idea, though. So, Hallie, where can people get more information? So our online course can be accessed at uh, elearn.connectsautism.ca. And again, it's a free module. It takes about one hour to complete. And um, since it's released in January, over 650 first responders have already taken it. So we're really pleased um, with that response. And we're really looking looking forward to seeing more people accessing it and seeing more first responders aware and ready to support individuals with autism in in an effective way. Well, thanks so much for telling us about it. We hope we get those numbers up. Thanks so much, Sumi. Thank you so much. That is Constable Rob Dugowie, who's a Port Moody police officer, and Hallie Mitchell, who is the director of training at the Canucks Autism Network. You know, when it comes to raising kids, one of the best things that we can do for them is have a healthy relationship with each other, with them. Uh, That is so critical to their upbringing. And that is why the Canadian Pediatric Society is now advising pediatricians and family physicians to do more to help parents cope with those inevitable challenges that come with raising kids. They're trying to put an emphasis on something called positive parenting. And that means moving away from, you know, punishment and consequences and more towards empathy and communication. But that's all well and good. What does that actually mean? How are parents supposed to put that into action? That's what we're going to talk about now with the help of our guest, Dr. Andrea Feller, who's a member of the Canadian Pediatric Society's Early Years Task Force. Dr. Feller, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Simi. How long have you been looking at this issue? You know, the Canadian Pediatric Society has had statements in the past talking about positive discipline or talking about some of these issues. 
But this is really the first time that the CPS has come out and said actively, this is something that all primary care providers really need to talk about with families. And to your point about timing and and how long have we uh, been looking at this, I think over time we've seen a real shift. And so as primary care providers, I think sometimes we were nervous to talk about these things. We thought it would add to blame or guilt uh, or even judgment of somebody's cultural values or, or beliefs. But at the same time, we've really found that parents are coming to us with this. They carry these worries. They carry these concerns about their parenting. And it finally reached that point where the evidence in terms of the positive parenting approach really match that readiness where families across Canada are saying, I need help with this. You need to help me. Okay. So what does that mean then when, it, when you say positive parenting, what do we really mean? That's right. And, you know, I noticed, uh, you, I think you gave a great description. I would say that uh, one thing I would amend there is there's still consequences. There's still results for behavior. And I, I think something uh, we might struggle with as parents is that we know we're not supposed to yell. We're not supposed to hit. We're supposed to have that connected, empathetic approach that you de- you described so beautifully. Um, and then we have to allow those results to happen, uh, but just not as punishment. So positive parenting itself, it's really it's a set of principles about how to behave. It really looks at the behavior as the issue and helping teach the child in an age-appropriate way about that behavior, where I think a lot of us perhaps were raised, you know, through nobody's fault, that we focused on the child, we were focused on as what was bad or what was the problem. And so it's just a small shift around focusing on the behavior. And it also focuses on the parent's own approach. So, you know, like I mentioned about yelling and hitting and those sorts of things from the parent, um, often when I ask families, well, who helped you when you were a child? Who helped you deal with your emotions or cope with your emotions? Um, and I often get, you know, a big-eyed look and, you know, let's not talk about that because yeah. we didn't talk about it in my family. Um, and here now we're saying to parents, okay, yelling, hitting, all those things are really not helpful. They don't teach anybody anything, especially children. Go at it. And they're saying, well, how do I teach them about emotional self-control if nobody taught me? So the second part of it really is that parent's own approach. Are they led by their own triggers? Um, or are they able to be able to be in a place of teaching and coaching and connection, which is kind of that holy grail uh, that, that positive parenting is all about. That's what I was wondering, too. Like, I think parents would love to do these things, but quite right. often we're so tired, right? At the end of the day, or we're busy or we, we have so you, much yes. else going on. They want to be the best parents they can be, but it's hard. Right. Right. And you know what? And again, I think that's what gave us pause for a while is, gosh, parents don't need any more guilt. So many of us ourselves are parents. So many of us, you know, we're working two jobs, us and our spouse or partner or grandma's there or whatever it is. And we come home and we're just exhausted. So here, here's here's the uh, iPad. Leave me alone. You know, and I love you or whatever. Um, And and I think that parents, uh, just like you said, there's so much information out there in mainstream about what our children do need to thrive. And our parents, I find they're ready to hear this. You know, I I have these conversations and I say, you know what, it's not your fault at all. We're all in the same boat, but now it's your responsibility and I'm going to help you with this. Just like you were saying to me, I'm going to help you figure out when I come home and man, I, you know, I I need the butler to rub my feet. Like, you know, where, where is that? (laughs) Where's the butler? Yes. (laughs) Fantasy world, right? You know, that none of us have, Um, but we, we relate to it and to be able to say, 
you know what, I get it, and here's some things that you can actually do, because parenting is the single most modifiable factor out there that can help kids. And, and we're not asking for, you know, to climb Mount Everest overnight. Small changes make a big difference, and then they compound. And then the most gratifying thing is when we do this work with families, they turn around and they say, I'm enjoying being a parent again. You know, I don't have that guilt like I had before. I have that connection. So they know inherently that they want to strive for it. And it's not even so much that we're pushing for it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're really asking for it. What kind of difference? You, you said that it can even the smallest thing can make a difference. What kind of difference can we see in children if their parents are able to practice more of this? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I don't want to add to anybody's guilt for sure. So this is just a general statement and not about yes. anybody's, uh, you know, anybody particular uh, for their children. But we actually find that children are better behaved. Um, we find that they are uh, more compliant. Children are naturally set up to develop in a way where they belong. And they are ready to please their parents and please their family. It might not seem that way, you know, with some of their behaviors. So when we start changing that game and, uh, you know, and having that kind but firm approach, eventually, sometimes there's some acting out at first, but eventually then they start to walk a little taller and say, I am part of this family and this is how we are in this family. And we're all in it together, if that makes sense. No, it does make sense too. Then it's also, it's just learning, right? For a lot of parents, sometimes it's just, it takes time for these, these ideas to take hold. Absolutely. It's, it's really, it's a mindset shift, but um, we, are, we, our own brains are plastic. So our children, much more than us, uh, they, are, they are wired to learn right now, um, but we can also learn too. And practice makes permanent is something I always say. So um, I also say it's kind of a present. So when your child is staring you down in that moment when, oh. you know, you, you just want to do something unspeakable, that's actually a moment where your brain is ready to learn and change and make it easier for yourself to behave differently next time. Okay, so is that the moment that the parent has to recognize that? And maybe it's not about, this is not about the discipline, but it is about maybe raising your voice too high or yelling. That's right. That's right. Those are some of the small changes to recognize, okay, can I manage myself? Kids know. They will see right through any of us. Can I manage myself to actually convey connection, but that I'm in control? Or if I open my mouth, you know, am I going to be at 100 decibels? And in that moment, there's always time to walk away. There's, no matter what's going on, as long as your child is safe, there's always time to shift that dynamic, decide not to engage, And I even say there's times I've yelled down the hallway, I'm too angry right now, I need to calm down, or I'm too angry right now, I need to take deep breaths. But it's exactly what you said, it's giving the permission, uh, because parents feel so much guilt, I think, and they hear themselves saying it, giving them permission to say, yes, you are going to be tempted to do that. It doesn't mean anything bad about you at all. And let's work on what you can do. Can you take a deep breath? Can you walk away? Or are you able to calm it down and say, okay, honey, you're upset. I can work with you on this. You know, mama's here, grandma's here. We're good. Let's see how it goes. Dr. Feller, thank you so much for talking to us about this. Thank you, Simi. Take care. Appreciate that. That's Dr. Andrea Feller, who's a member of the Canadian Pediatric Society's Early Years Task Force. Let's get you an update now on what has been happening in Paris. And it's just so horrifying to watch this 
unbelievable landmark and this history, this historical building that it seems like everybody knew that that meant Paris when you saw Notre Dame Cathedral uh, go up in flames as it has been. Uh, we've been watching for almost four hours now what has been going on in Paris. Flames already reached one of the towers. It also already already brought down the church spire that was almost 300 feet tall. The French president, Emmanuel Macron, is treating the fire as a national emergency and they said all means except for water-dropping aircraft are being deployed. Uh, They believe that's unsuitable for fires like this one because dumping water could cause the whole structure to collapse. But let's get the very latest on this now with the help of Adam Plowright, who's a reporter based in Paris for the AFP News Agency. Adam, thank you for joining us. Hi, good evening. It's a pleasure. What is it like in Paris right now? Well, I think, as you can imagine, there's a real sense of uh, of shock here as, as Parisians, either those that were, were have been watching the fire all evening. There's been crowds of people out on the on the banks of the River Seine, uh, looking on uh, as the uh, as the cathedral burns, and other people glued to their televisions, uh, watching on the latest news and the latest announcements from the from the scene. As we, we've seen, the Prime Minister, the President, uh, the Interior Minister, all of them uh, have rushed there to. Uh, uh, to, to, to watch rescue operations. What do we know at this point about what might have caused this? What we do know for sure is that the cathedral has been undergoing a major renovation project. Uh, just last week, uh, we saw pretty spectacular images of uh, of, of the people renovating uh, the spire of the cathedral, which you, which you spoke about. They lifted off these, these big copper statues, uh, 16 of them are around the spire, and we saw pictures of those being lifted off by, by cranes. Um, and no indication that that, that, that is, the, is the cause of the uh, of the of the fire this evening. Um, but we've 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 seen those uh, those renovation works underway for for some time. And as you'll see on the pictures, there's also scaffolding uh, around. Uh, parts of, of where the roof uh, once stood. Uh, so that, of course, is the prime suspect. Uh, the cause of the, uh, of, the, of, the, of the blaze, firefighters have said it's possible, um, but it's really at this stage too early to, uh, to come to any uh, firm conclusions about that. Is there any information on, I know there was a lot of priceless artifacts and artworks inside the cathedral. Were they still there as a result of the renovation or were some of them moved out like the ones that you described? We know that um, some firefighters were able to rush into the uh, cathedral at, at, at the start, um, and and some of them were able to come out with with some of the artifacts and and, and some priceless artworks uh, inside. Uh, we don't know how much at this stage. Only that, that they were able to to access the cathedral. Um, uh, unfortunately, uh, the fire spread very quickly. Uh, through the wooden beams of the ceiling, uh, and, and the firefighters were, were forced to withdraw, uh, obviously without being able to uh, to rescue everything. Uh, but really, I think we'll know more about that in the morning um, as authorities have tot up uh, what has been uh, taken out and, and what sadly has been lost forever. Uh, can you give us an idea of the, of the history of this building here? You talked about the wooden beams in the ceiling. My understanding from what I was reading today is some of those bu- those beams were like from the original construction of the building. That's right. Well, it took, it took around 200 years to, uh, to complete. Uh, it was completed in the 13th century. Um, but a lot of it, that I think that's really important to understand, is how much the, the Notre, Notre Dame Cathedral sort of represents France's history in some ways. It was, uh, it, was, it was ransacked and heavily damaged during the Revolution. So a lot of the original work was, um, was, was lost at that point. Um, it then underwent uh, another uh, major renovation project. Uh, there, were, there was a, the spire that you, you talked about that, yeah. that's collapsed. Uh, that was actually an addition in the uh, in the 19th century, um, 
by a French architect who uh, who who, who uh, undertook a major renovation uh, job after the uh, the novel by Victor Hugo um, about the uh, the Hunchback of Notre Dame. So, was there any damage during World War One, World War Two? No, miraculously, it survived, and a lot of Parisians. Uh, certainly those of the, the older generations who are still around remember that it was the, the Notre Dame bells uh, which announced uh, the liberation of the city uh, from the Nazis. But the, uh, the cathedral itself uh, survived uh, and, and wasn't damaged either during the First World War or the Second World War. So what, is the, what are the firefighting efforts like at this point, Adam? It sounds to me like it's all, a lot of it is from the ground working towards the building. That's right. I mean, it, 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 what we know, what we're hearing from, from people on the ground is, as you can imagine, it's a very complicated firefighting operation. Uh, what we can see at the moment is there are, there are around 12 uh, high-pressure hoses, many sort of suspended on, on cranes, which are spraying onto uh, the, the, the nave of the cathedral. Um, uh, the roof has been, uh, has been long down for, for several hours now. So those, those hoses are spraying on. And, we, and I think you mentioned in your introduction, the priority at the moment is saving the, uh, the two towers, uh, which obviously anybody who's, who's stood and looked at the cathedral from the, from the square in front will remember those, those two huge stone towers. Yeah. And one of them, we, we know that the fire has reached there. Uh, obviously, the priority is to, to, to stop that spreading. Uh, there is a danger that that would collapse. Um, and, uh, and of course, if that collapsed, that could bring down the facade and potentially the other tower. So uh, we're looking at a situation where the next couple of hours will really be crucial uh, in terms of, uh, of saving uh, what remains of the cathedral. All right. Well, Adam, thank you so much for the update. We appreciate your time. A pleasure. That is Adam Plowright, who's a reporter based in Paris for the AFP News Agency.